This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. It's episode 75 of the Doctor Who podcast. I'm joined once again by Tom to discuss the only thing that's been on television worth watching over the last couple of days. We're talking, of course, about the Royal Wedding. No, actually, we're not. We're talking about Day of the Moon, episode two of the new series of Doctor Who. Yes, indeed. It's a wonderful thing to be sat in England after millions of people have sat wrapped in front of the television screens watching to see how the relationship between these two people actually turns out. Will and Kate, congratulations. Sorry, sorry, I had to do that. Um, Yes, indeed. (laughs) Welcome to episode 75 of the Doctor Who podcast, where we'll be discussing episode two of season six, Day of the Moon. I'm only sorry that Trev's not here today to actually let us know what he thinks of the whole story. So Trev, wherever you are, we hope you're having a wonderful time stunning yourself on the beaches of Brisbane. Um, But I'm joined by James. Hello, James. Hello, Tom. Hi. Wow. Okay, so the obvious question is, what did you think of Day of the Moon yesterday? Well, I suspect it was really, really good. I have a feeling it's a very, very good story. But I didn't understand a word or very, very little. (laughs) So I've been... um, I've been quite looking forward to sitting here discussing it with you, Tom. And uh, I mean, part of it was because I was very tired and part of it was because it was, well, a very convoluted story. And I did get some of it. But mm. on the whole, yeah, it, for for something that is almost unrecognisable as Doctor Who, oh! before, before we even talk about the story, uh, let's talk about the way that these two episodes have been presented to us. Okay. And that is in a very, very American way. And I'm not just talking about the setting. I'm talking about just the way the story is told, incredibly convoluted. And this is something that I think that the Doctor and his companions have just kind of fallen into. Rather than a story grown up and been written about these characters, it's almost as if the story was there and that they've been kind of inserted into it. And I don't think they've been inserted badly. I just think that this is absolute genre-breaking stuff. And there is no other Doctor Who story that resembles what we've seen on our screens for the last two weeks. That's really interesting. Okay, so there's a couple of things in there which which we'll have to talk about over the podcast, but you think it was too complicated? Not necessarily complicated, but I think it's been written very much with a DVD audience or the hard drive audience in mind. This is not something that your average viewer at six o'clock on a Saturday evening is going to sit down and watch as disposable telly. This has been written for... People who are prepared to concentrate, pick up a story, complicated story, that started seven days ago and finish it off today. So, yeah, I think it will probably appeal to fewer viewers than something like um, an RTD Christmas special, which you can pick up, watch, consume forget about you just can't do that with either day of the moon or the impossible astronaut and you're not intended to um it's a deliberate shift in opening you know it's it's a very heavy very dark uh very scary in 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 some places um way to open a new series and if there aren't complaints after these two episodes then doctor who can do anything it likes from now on at six o'clock Oh, look, it's all about getting the complaints in. It's all about scaring the kids. I've got to say, this is actually, factually, what I remember Doctor Who looking like in my head in 1979. It's big, it's bold, it's brassy, it's 
confident. The phrase you used is the right one. Genre uh, redefining. It absolutely pushes the boundaries of what Doctor Who is. And this is the most Doctor Who-y thing that I've seen since the return of the new series. It was absolutely what I, what I would call Doctor Who. It's great characters, brilliant story. It's interesting that you're not the only person saying you're, you're a bit confused about by what's going on. It seems looking at some of the forums that there is a, a straight split between people who are saying that was too complicated, it was too hard for me to follow. And, there, and people who are saying well, okay, well, that was really straightforward. What's your problem? The simple thing is, you're never going to be able to please all of the people all of the time. And for years, the RCD bashes were giving it, oh, it's too easy, it's too simple, it's not Doctor Who, we want it heavier and darker. And now, it is heavier and darker. And yeah, you do have to pay attention. What are you waiting for? I'm waiting for you to run. It'd look better if I shot you while you're running. Then again, looks at everything. Is there a reason you're doing this? I want you to know where you stand. In a cell. In the perfect cell. Nothing can penetrate these walls. No sound. Not a radio wave. Not the tiniest particle of anything. In here, you're literally cut off from the rest of the universe. I've also got to say, as a bit of a shout to some of our American and Canadian listeners, more, more the American listeners, really, I'd be really a bit offended at the moment because one of the <laughs> things I've seen are people saying, oh, it's too complicated for an American audience. It's not too complicated for a thinking audience, to be honest. But that's my <laughs> thumbnail sketch of why Day of the Moon and The Impossible Astronaut are absolutely phenomenal. You're absolutely right. It's going to be great to be able to edit these things together and watch as one long movie because it's just an absolute fanfare of a return. Perfect stuff. Oh, well, that's... that's- that's interesting as too. I mean, first of all, let me make it clear. I mean, I'm not saying it's too complicated. I did understand, I would say, pretty much most of the storyline. Mm-hmm. But you had to sit there. You had to think about it. You had to try and think, well, why is that scene actually put here? What what are they trying to communicate? And I, I don't think too complex for any kind of audience no, is really no. a debate even worth having. What I think is important is whether or not people will tune in next week on the basis of what they've seen over the last two. And that's where the difference is hugely here. If you were to watch watch something like Partners in Crime, for example. Hmm. You know, it's it's um I mean I like that episode. It's probably the best R C D opener for me. But it it's not really heavy, it's not dark. It's it's a little bit more dimensional perhaps than a comic book story whereas this kind of Doctor Who you're talking the robots of death you're talking almost Blake 7 and um, to a degree perhaps you know a little bit of a homage to some Bidmead stuff I mean not necessarily in terms of the science jargon because there wasn't a great deal of that but tight plotting things moving very quickly um, through minimal dialogue because that's pretty much what happens over the last two weeks so Mm. it's very very different Doctor Who that's the point I'm trying to make and whether or not it was a good decision or a bad decision I don't really think it matters it's just different Doctor Who and the important thing with Mm. the programme is that it doesn't stay the same the programme has never stayed the same and I'm I'm pretty certain possibly even as soon as next week we're going to be seeing some light flush Doctor Who with jokes galore and lots of, well, <laughs> for this story, lots of wows and pirates. <laughs> That's my best pirate impression, by the way. But we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Let's talk a little bit about the actual story itself. And um, I'm, I'm trying to remember how I felt at this point last week after having just seen part one, trying to figure out what was going on. I think the main questions for me were, well, 
who was in the spacesuits. Mm. We kind of got an answer to that, mm. but the answer given was a much larger question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm, there's absolutely no doubt that we'll uh, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail, but. The silence were completely unexplained. We got an answer to that this time. We know who they are. Do uh, we? Okay. Oh, pretty much, yeah. I think we, we we know more about them, shall we say. We don't necessarily know who they are. My pet theory is that they're actually humans. They're augmented humans a little bit. Hmm. That's rather than an alien race. But I don't think that's a particularly important theory or, uh, or plot point. We, we know that they've been manipulating the way the human race develops for thousands of years. And I think even a doctor said, well, actually, you know, yeah, it's a very naughty thing to do. But it hasn't hampered the <laughs> it hasn't hampered the human race's development. And my point would be, why is he so keen to stop them? They're not actually doing anything bad. Human race has done all right. Got to the moon. Well, um, what's I think the only way we'll know whether or not they are an evil race is what their end game is. What are they actually trying to achieve mm-hmm. through manipulating the human race? Are they just bored, or uh, you know, have they actually got an objective in mind? Okay, interesting. Okay, let's talk about the actual composition of this episode, what we actually saw. Uh, Did we enjoy it? Did we not enjoy it? And the first 15 minutes, I think, were a little bit mad for me, very breakneck (laughs) speed. Cool. And I think deliberately so, deliberately so. Mm. But about 10, 12 minutes in, everyone's in the TARDIS and you get an info dump. You get a whole lot of exposition. So, you know, for people who didn't necessarily understand what was going on or couldn't figure it out for themselves, then you, you actually got it explained. And from, from that point of view, Tom, do you think this is really Doctor Who? You know, do you really need a break in the action for the characters to explain to the audience what's going on? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. And in pretty much any classic Doctor Who story, there's the moment where the Doctor explains to us what's going on. And 11 minutes into this, you've got the, the main characters all in the TARDIS saying, so what's going on, Doctor? And that's the yeah. closest, that's the closest thing um, that we've seen in, the new, in New Who to, what's that, Doctor? What do you mean? How does it work, Doctor? And I thought, well, that's fantastic. So if anyone wasn't keeping up, there's all the information for you. The other thing I'd say is there's only really two types of Doctor Who. There's good Doctor Who and there's bad Doctor Who. And this is firmly <laughs> good Doctor Who. Um, you've got essentially the same plot as the macro terror if I'm honest, i.e. here's a world of people or a sort of small group of people in the macro terror who have been hypnotised or b- who believe that everything's okay when it really, really isn't. They're being manipulated. Um, it's exactly the same story, pretty much exactly the same story. Um, and given that, <laughs> given, given that it's a Troughton era story as well, um, the resolution is a very Troughton-y thing to do, which is to say, listen, stop messing about because I'm the Doctor, I'm here to save the day, you can stop of your own accord or I'll stop you. Right, okay, well I've done my pretending to be stupid like I'm Columbo, now I'm going to stop you and and big time. The only but, thing... But you, you, you compare there, sorry to jump in, but you, you, you compare the resolution of this story to the Macro Terror. Would you compare the way the Doctor acted? He didn't know what the end game was, and yet he advocated their genocide. Well, see, that's that was where I was going to go, actually. The only thing which is a little bit suspect here is what the old man decides to do... Mm. Um, about the silence. To me, in my head, it's a very Troughton-style resolution. It's quite a violent resolution, and it does hark back to Davros's words at Journey's End. Well, this is what you do, Doctor. You make people into weapons. But I've got to be honest, that scene of River just dealing death outside the TARDIS. Yeah, well- I know. I know. I have to admit, I mean, very action-orientated, very well-directed, I have to say. We don't talk about production values on the DWP very much, but mm. this episode was incredibly well-directed, and there's one sequence that I really want to talk about... Um, 
in a bit more detail. But certainly, I think the way the Doctor reacted to River Song's murder yeah. of all of this, these aliens, these sentient beings, and even the flippant discussion beforehand about how many she could kill in there and, and how quickly. This, to me, is a big signpost. And it's a signpost to something that I picked up on last week. I say picked up on, I'm making it sound like I picked it up on it correctly. I probably didn't. But I think <laughs> Amy's choice here, Amy's choice is the defining episode that set up all of Series 6. Now, mm. we're talking about the Doctor's darker sides. We've got the way that he thinks suddenly manifesting themselves into another entity. Mm. We've got the Doctor in these two episodes behaving in an incredibly Machiavellian way. We've mm. seen some very dark character traits coming out. We're seeing, again, a little bit later on the TARDIS, not being able to make up its mind whether Amy is pregnant or whether Amy isn't pregnant. Yeah. Very much mirroring the setup in Amy's choice. Mm. And I can't help feel that we are seeing a Doctor here that's being slightly altered or a variant version of the Doctor and I think that will tie in with the fact that we saw him die in the opening episode mm. we, we've got a slightly alternative Doctor here, someone whose morals and values may not necessarily be exactly the same as as, as we're used to and River Song is a negative influence on him she's a bad girl Tom Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. You know, it's great to see the character of the Doctor developing again. Don't get me wrong, it's not like he didn't when uh, David Tennant was playing the character. But before I get carried away with all of that, let's get into talking about the story. <laughs> I think that looking at this, we have some amazing characters. Now, there's, of course, the huge question of is, who is that girl at the end? But mm. before we get there, we've got, we had some amazing performances from the regular cast and from the guest cast too. Is there anything that particularly stood out for you? Just the one. Same as last week, really. Mark Shepard absolutely blew me away. Absolutely brilliant portrayal as a man in black. Love that. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think his character has been really, really well defined. And it's quite rare for me to really warm to an American character. It's not because I don't like Americans. It's because well, yeah. they don't normally stand out so well. And the parts aren't usually written so well for an American actor within a British TV series. And mm. I, I just I hung on his every word. And I still think that that character, well, we all know that character has such a major role to play yet and uh, I, I love the character really do um I, I felt that the guy who played Nixon was used much more as a as, as a humorous element here he was a convenient get out clause and that was underlined by the rather inappropriate American fanfare every time he made an appearance into a scene. Um, I th I'm, I'm partly with you, but the positive for me is that this is possibly the first Doctor Who show where the American accents have been really good and Americans have not been portrayed as being somehow bumbling or, or just one-sided cartoon characters. Um, no, but they did come in for a couple of criticisms. I mean, last episode, to great humorous effect, the Doctor's sitting there incredibly confident, saying, I've just walked into the Oval Office. Mm. You can't can't just shoot me. River comes up with the line, they're Americans. And it's like, don't shoot, don't shoot. <laughs> Suddenly realises the threat is there. But it's a bit of a dig at uh, <laughs> the way the Americans are seen. For me, they did come in for a bit of a bashing, but I agree. I think their portrayal yeah. was as convincing as an American performance needs to be for a UK audience. Well, I, I, th I thought there was real depth there. I mean, particularly Kerry Shale as Dr Renfrew, the guy who's looking after the orphanage. Hello. FBI. It must be Dr. Renfrew. Can we come in? The children are asleep. We'll be very quiet. Is there a problem? It's about a missing child. 
Well, what are you? Yeah, yes, come in, please. This way. Please excuse the riding. It <laughs> keeps happening. I, I try to clean it up. It's the kids, yeah? They do that. Uh, yes, the children. It must be. Yeah, yes. No, there are, there are a couple of things about that. Number one, it highlighted the incredible use of colour in the whole episode. You know, going from those bright, searing oranges in the opening scenes to those really cold blues and greys when we get to the orphanage. Um, but mm. his wonderful performance was, like, was nice and slow and creepy with that lovely southern drawl, you know, soft as molasses and just completely insane. That said, this is a story about contrast. So as, as I mentioned, there's the contrast in colour. Um, the orphanage scene, we, ha- we have to talk about that later on because it has one of the most scary moments for me as a viewer when uh, Amy's wandering about with her torch, the hatch in a door slides back and there's Eyepatch Lady saying, oh no, it's all right, she's only dreaming. Perfect. Yeah. Phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. Well, mm. that was the scene I was referring to and I mentioned production values mm. because everything set within that orphanage was... Phenomenal. It reminded me of Resident Evil. Do you remember the um the, oh, yes. the computer game that I played on a PlayStation One you know, hundreds of <laughs> years ago? Uh, but it was very dark. Uh, of course, it had to be thundering and raining on the outsides as well because it mm-hmm. wouldn't just wouldn't have been right otherwise. Yep. But yeah, that scene in particular, that well, all of the scenes shot within that particular location were were phenomenal. Mm. Uh, I did notice a couple of repeats, if you like. You know, Moffat using the graffiti on the wall. Yeah, straight straight from blink also the idea that the, the uh, Renfrew's head is completely fried he doesn't know what year it is but also mm. so I'm sure some viewers do know about this um, at the time when the when the plague was striding around England and I believe it was the 17th century I could be wrong I need to be advised about that um, there are churches still standing where people who are dying of the plague have just scrawled messages begging for mercy from the Almighty. Uh, And Mm. if you look at pictures of that, then they are absolutely analogous to uh, the inside of the orphanage. Um, Of course, inside the orphanage, we've got that uh, the scene which is going to send fandom into into hysterics, um, which is, of course, the picture of Amy with a baby. Yes. Now, <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're clearly supposed to draw some conclusion there. Uh, to, to the, well, there was pictures of a little girl. There was pictures of Amy. There was pictures of Amy with a baby. I, we still don't know what's going on there. Got absolutely no idea. No, we don't. We and don't. I think that's part of the beauty of this episode is that it refers to a number of the mysteries that we want to be answered and resolved. Mm. But it does it by posing more questions. And I think that's quite clever storytelling. It will create, I think, quite a dedicated fan base, as if Doctor Who hasn't already got one. Yeah. Um, but it will it will hopefully create a new fan base, partially in America, who knows. And I, I just think it was very, very well done, that, that entire sequence. It, it felt to me, and again, I realise this might be an obscure reference, but very much like Susan Hill's Woman in Black... Um, there, there was a, a, a scene where the door opened and the rocking horse was still in motion mm-hmm. in the nursery. Yeah. That is straight out of Woman in Black, uh, the book and indeed the stage play that's still playing in London now. Okay. It's incredibly eerie. It's it's all about something quite macabre with children. There's something not quite right there and it creates an extremely uncomfortable feel to the story. And yeah, and tinged with all. I mean, the most light comparison you can possibly make is to say that it was completely tinged with Scooby Doo. 
Scooby Who. Um, Scooby Who. Yeah, you're right. As I was watching it, there are two points where I thought Scooby Who. <laughs> Obviously, as the Doctor is inside the Apollo Eleven uh, mission, which has got <laughs> to be one of the funniest scenes uh, in, in New Who today. But that said, I, Matt Smith, of course, is his own man. More about him in a second. <laughs> At times, he comes across as playing the Doctor like a cross between Charles Hawtrey and Bill Nye. People aren't familiar with Charles Hawtrey. He's a, <laughs> a very thin member of the Carry On cast, but exceptionally camp one. As well. <laughs> Matt Smith does this thing of sort of dancing around with manic energy and leading with his wrists an awful lot, like he's being pulled along on strings, which is quite quite fantastic. What mm. did we think of the Doctor in this? I mean, all I know about the Doctor is that I know less and less about him, and, and I think that's hmm. probably the same for the character as well, because I'm not entirely convinced this Doctor has any idea where he's going or what he's doing. Oh, um, really? That's probably summed up at the end of the episode perfectly by saying, let's just forget about what's happened. <laughs> let, let, let's go somewhere else. That might be him running away a little bit from uh, a destiny that he already knows about, similar to the 10th Doctor, when mm. he decides to go and um, have a last-minute tour before he goes to see the Ood. But um, I, I don't really know, and I'm not entirely certain it's, it's, it's desperately important um, that the Doctor is completely aware of what's going on here. Well, do you know, I, I, I think there's a subtlety, there's an irony and there's a sadness going on. Um, I think we are being f- literally visually flashed back to think about last season as well, particularly when... Um, yeah, uh, silence. Know, yeah. Exactly so. Um, but I think this Doctor has an idea what's happening, uh, because he, he had to know. The moment he stepped outside the TARDIS and said, right, I'm going to do this with Neil Armstrong's foot, he knew what he was going to do. And it's nice to see the Doctor being very doctoral, i.e., I've got it, I'm going to explain it to you slowly, but I am absolutely ahead of you, except for the the moments where he's not. But I think... And for, the, and for the things that he doesn't yet know, and I still don't think he knows that he's leading to a death. Well, here's the thing. There is that throwaway line at the end of it, and it is, there are lots of throwaway lines. You only live once. This is from a man who's lived yeah. ten times to a room full of people who have died at least once each. Yeah, that, was, <laughs> that was a bit weird, I, I admit, and I think that's got to be laced with either huge amounts of irony or it means something else. And I think so many lines here mean something else. I think it's new for the existing base of Doctor Who fans. It's a new thing. Um, you haven't had to pay this much attention and rewatch things again and again and again. And I think that could be viewed as an extremely positive thing yeah. by fans and uh, people who really enjoy complicated and intricate shows. Yeah. Or it could be seen as a bad thing for people who are casual viewers and think, well... I'm not going to stick around for this. I don't know what's going on. Well, do you know, it is, it's interesting you say that. I had to watch a couple of stories from Classic Who a couple of times to get them. There are people saying, oh, it's too complicated. The old series was never like this. The old series was absolutely like that. Mm. Um, Legopolis, I had to understand. I had to take a step back and understand it. And Warriors Gate. <laughs> well, yes, indeed. It was stories like that that made people lose interest and certainly made the casual viewer lose interest in Doctor Who. Mm. Robots of Death is a completely different story because that is much more of a Sherlock Holmes kind of mixed with yeah, yeah. Blake Seven, Blade Runner. It's 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 brilliant. Um, it, it's an excellent, excellent story. But I, I'm not advocating, once again, I'm not advocating that this is too complicated. I am saying that it is much more complicated than what yeah. we've seen in the last five, six years. No, you're right, and you're right. I, don't, I do not think we are going to get a more complex storyline mm-hmm. uh, from Doctor Who. Who knows, this may all be incredibly straightforward and incredibly simple once we've seen the end of it. Mm-hmm. And we, 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 we just have to to wait and see and I think I have used the expression wait and see so many times (laughs) throughout the last few podcasts because we just don't know what on earth is coming next
I, I did have a thoughts a little while ago, which I didn't articulate on the podcast, unfortunately, but I did think that the TARDIS we saw in the lodger is a different one to the one that we saw in the season six trailer and indeed in these two episodes. Hmm. It just so happens to be of a similar variety. And a doctor, again yesterday, said, I've seen one of these before, which implies it wasn't the precise same TARDIS. Right, okay. That make, that does make sense to me. I, I think it was the same set, but you're right, oh, it's yes. not supposed to be yes, the yes. same TARDIS. Um, and I think, actually, that's that, that thing comes under my list of things to watch out for. Stephen Moffat is very, very good at hiding solutions to things in plain view. Yeah. So we, what do we know about the silence? We know that if we look at them, we remember them. If we look away, we forget them. Amy comes round, she says, I've just got here. And the silence say, no, you've been here many days. I suspect Amy has been there for a very long time. And that is a picture of her with a baby. Um, also, watch out for things like the post-hypnotic suggestion. It's possible if that's a silent ship that there were silence in that ship when the Doctor first climbed aboard the one in the lodger. It's possible. I'm not saying it that, oh, that there I were. don't think it's a silent ship. I think it's something that's been left behind. Okay. I think it's something they've discovered. I think it's something they may well have orchestrated come to Earth through, you know, human activity mm-hmm. um, of, of some kind. But I, I don't believe it's a time and space ship that the silence own because that would undermine their entire reason for being on earth for the last two or three thousand years you just jump forwards you move certain key moments um, or you adjust them you influence them you wouldn't just sit there and set up shop Mm. in planet earth for thousands of years and that does beg the big question again that you correctly identified for the same one i've got as well what do the silence want what were they doing well, mm. because, because that wasn't there was no indication of why they were actually doing this. We have no. guided we, we've guided humans since the wheel. Why? Why? What you know? What what's going on there? But I'm, as you say, it's like a piece of music. You can work out how you think the song's going to win from what you've heard when you're halfway through it. But you don't know. There could be a key change. There could be a change of mood. Anything could happen. And I've got to say, that's that's the joy of of this this particular version of Doctor Who right now. For the first time in a long time, the spoilers have been clamped down on, and nobody knows. It is actually watching a story unfold. It's fantastic. Mm. No, I, I think that's that's partially because, as you say, of the the, the clampdown on access and pre broadcast publicity material i mean you look at that trailer in hindsight now it was basically a trailer for the first episode yep this is what we like (laughs) which i think is absolutely great but i also think it's a testament to the way stephen moffat writes is that no one has a clue where Mm. his brain is taking him and russell t davis i think is you know is i I do think he's a good writer don't get me wrong and i think he came up with some good story arcs but when you look at something like bad wolf now i mean how clumsy is that compared to what stephen moffat is doing i've been re-watching the rtd stuff in preparation for the beginning of season six and i remember at the time feeling a little bit oh well it is a bit for kids now and it's not really for me but watching it again it's like actually no this is really really good and and that first season whatever else it did or didn't do it had to be spectacular enough to reseat Doctor Who Eccleston had to be good enough the writing had to be good enough Billy Piper had to be good enough all of it had to be good and it was good enough for us to be sat here talking about it six years in so yeah I, I hear what you're saying it's mm. different to RTD but then it, but in the same way uh, Graham Williams is different to John Nathan Turner so oh absolutely absolutely and it's it's not a major criticism Tom of, of Russell T Davis but hmm. I, I do think we are going to have to put both of these executive producers in court one day and I'm going to have to argue the case I think for Stephen Moffat and you'll have to defend RTD but I, I think <laughs> that, that, that would force some quite interesting discussions there and when you compare I mean what are two very good writers Mm. then the way they write 
is, is just so amazingly different. And when you examine and you're as devoted to a program as, as, as we are uh, to, to Doctor Who, you, you examine those kind of nuances. I mean, you would watch another program and probably not even consider who wrote it or, or how it's been written. But Doctor Who makes you do that. Mm. And I, I do think Moffat's brand is, is as different to RTDs as Graham Williams was compared to Derek Sherwin. Uh, Derek Sherwin, of course, who oversaw the last days of Patrick Troughton, so things like the War Games. Of course, uh, Graham Williams, who was responsible for season 17, so oh, the glorious season 17, so City of Death, Destiny of the Daleks, and so on. It's an exoskeleton, basically life support. There's about 20 different kinds of alien tech in here. Who was she? Why put her in here? Put this on, you don't even need to eat. The suit processes sunlight directly. It's got built-in weaponry. And a communication system that can hack into anything. Including the telephone network. Easily. But why find the president? It defaults to the highest authority it can find. The little girl gets frightened. The most powerful man on Earth gets a phone call. The night terrors with a hotline to the White House. You won't learn anything from that envelope, you know. Purchased on Earth, perfectly ordinary stationery, TARDIS blue, summoned by a stranger who won't even show his face. That's a first for me. How about you? Do you know, I've got to say, the character who I'm really beginning to warm to in a huge way is Rory, as played by Arthur Darville. That character has gone from being uh, mm. a bumbling bowl of spaghetti, much like Mickey, I suppose, into something strong with great dignity and, and a really great character and, and a great actor too. That lovely scene where he's saying to the Doctor, look, wherever she is, she can hear me and she knows I'm coming for her. Um, and the dignity when he thinks that she's talking about the Doctor uh, in the way that he says, well, OK, and I'm going to bring you to her. So even still, he's not letting it falter for a moment. I still have to ask about that character is that an Auton Rory or real Rory I just don't know well I think there was some dialogue concerning the Roman Empire yeah and yeah the, the doctor saying do you remember it etc so no he we'll put it this way the character certainly has got some memories mm. of what happened whilst he was waiting for Amy to come out of the Pandorica but whether or not he's actually an Auton now I, I don't think he is because I think the, the the big trick here from the Big Bang was that because Amy remembered him, he mm. exists the same way as the Doctor. He actually came back from the other sides of wherever the crack led because yeah. Amy remembered. And that, you can argue that's a bit of a weak plot point. But yeah, well, yeah, I, I think he's probably supposed to be Rory in all his glory, irrespective of whether he is an Auton or not. That's, it's very interesting. I, I see Rory now as being the primary audience identification figure as well, because he seems to be, you know, in, in a very fantastic way, because he's becoming more and more like the Doctor. Um, it's almost like, so it, it's very much saying, in fact, that, okay, you're a human being. If you were given the ability to live for 2,000 years, where the Doctor's only lived for 1,000, let's be honest, what would you become? How would you react? What, what, what would your thought processes be? And there's that lovely mm. scene, not unlike at the end of Tomb of the Cybermen, where Rory says, well, I, I remember it all I just there's a door in my head and I just close it sometimes yeah uh, very much which like, I guess you would have to do <laughs> I yeah mean, absolutely you really did have access to all of that uh, information and um, you know memories I, I, I think the Doctor has got a new relationship with Rory mm, very much because so. of the experiences of the season 5 finale mm. and that's exemplified again or demonstrated quite quite clearly when he's just sitting down having a one to one, and I agree completely with you in terms of the access point shifting from Amy um, to Rory now for for the casual viewer, and and even to the dedicated fan. Really, I mean, Rory is the Earthwire 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah Within yeah. a plug, he he grounds the audience to to modern day and reality is probably the better way of putting it. He he grounds the audience to reality, mm. and he does it with his humour. He does it with uh, a newly acquired uh, set of memories, and with that, a wealth of knowledge and. I, I think he's becoming more likeable, I agree. And he did start off as a pseudo-Mickey. The Doctor didn't take him particularly seriously, possibly because he saw him as a Mickey as well. Mm. And, yeah, quite frankly, he is far too good for that Amy Pond. A phenomenal performance up from Arthur Darville. Uh, if Matt Smith is up for a BAFTA, please can Arthur be recognised for a Best Supporting Actor? Is it, Well, let me ask you that question. Has his acting actually improved, or do you think the character has become more interesting? And I, I would say it's the latter. I, I, I just wonder, you know, are we acknowledging here that Moffat has got a long game in mind for all of his characters and we're just seeing Rory's a little bit sooner than the others I think you're absolutely right and all I would say as I say maybe repeating myself but yeah Rory's turning into being a very good man course if we're talking about characters we cannot go much further without talking about River yes um, yes, and if we're talking about New Who as well, there's that wonderful moment of the kiss at the very end, which is, and it's clear that it's the first time that the Doctor's kissed her, but it's the last time that she kisses him. Um, and you can see with Alex Kingston a heart breaking right there. Just a question for you. Um, I believe that this story is set after the Pandora opens in River's timeline. Where do you think it is? Yeah, I think so. I think she goes straight on to silence in the library pretty much after this. And there, there was a line in the, in the Impossible Astronaut that made me reassess the relationship the Doctor has to River. They said that they're going in opposite directions. Yes, and this, this was the crossover point, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, opposite directions... It sounds to me to be too orchestrated. If every time she knows him better, he knows her less, there is still an order to that. Mm. Now, if the Doctor were to meet Riversong out of order, then he would jump around that timeline as opposed to meeting him in nice, neat, linear, opposite directions. Do you know what I mean? I, I hear what you're saying, uh, but at the same time, he knows it's his future. And, and as much as the Doctor can be irresponsible, he does seem to have a line, and that's it. And that No, he does, but Riversong in particular may mm. not, you see, because, I mean, you're quite right. I think the look on her face at the end was because she thinks, well, the next time I meet him, he's not going to know me. Now, what is to stop the Doctor, because he is a Time Lord, at some point, in his future coming back and meeting her again nothing Nothing. precisely so the way that this is being played out means that I think somebody is behind the fact that they are meeting in this fashion you know it's being orchestrated it's being manipulated and I wouldn't be surprised if that was a doctor as well Uh, well I I see where you're coming from I see where you're coming from Um, but you're right it does mean that the next time that they meet if this is going in a in any kind of logical order, which it really isn't, then you're right. She will know him less and he will know her more. Mm. And it will be very interesting to see, particularly because it does mean that hopefully when we get to the end of season six, uh, we'll be able to watch this in river order, as I say, start, uh, finishing, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. finishing with Silas Library. And I don't think we've seen the beginning of that song just yet. Oh, <laughs> no, definitely, definitely not. I think we will have done by the end of series six. But this, this is the big thing for me. I think what Stephen Moffat is leaving as his legacy is that you can watch 13 episodes, probably 13, 13 episodes in a completely different order to the way that they were transmitted and I think I probably mentioned that on the previous podcast mm. but that will be watching the story unfold from River Song's point of view and I, I think that's a 
fascinating concept and absolutely completely typical for Stephen Moffat. What what I would like to just just talk about briefly was the fact that River Song didn't know whereabouts she was in her timeline and her relationship with the Doctor mm. until the very end of the story. And the face acting, that's probably not a technical term, <laughs> the face acting <laughs> uh, that Alex Kingston is capable of. And I'll, I'll give you another example. When she was looking at the Doctor just after she slapped him in Impossible Astronaut, she didn't say a word, but my goodness, those looks speak a thousand words. Yeah. And she, she did it again in a, in a different context mm. at the end of Day of the Moon. It was just sheer raw emotion and Russell T Davies was able to achieve that with very very few words Mm. Stephen Moffat achieved it with no words. I think you're absolutely correct. In, in essence, what we've got is world-class actors playing a script that's been written by a world-class writer in a show that's got world recognition and is itself the centrepiece of the BBC Saturday Night Programming. To me, this is the best the show's been for a long time. Fascinating. It's funny because I wouldn't agree. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, I think it's remarkably enjoyable and I mm. love the new direction it's taking, but to say that it's the best it's been for a long, long time, yeah. I can't say that anymore, not with New Who, because the show changes itself so frequently frequently and I appreciate every kind of Doctor Who to varying levels and I think that depends on the particular story I happen to be watching. When I was watching The Impossible Astronaut it was the best Doctor Who that I had seen pretty much ever I think. Yeah. When I was watching it last night I I, I wasn't of exactly the same view. I just thought well I feel a little bit more uncomfortable with the way that this story is being told. And I wasn't as caught up in the story. I was thinking about complaints from younger viewers. I was thinking about, is this going to appeal to um, a much younger Doctor Who fan? So I wasn't as caught up with the events of Day of the Moon as I was with Impossible Astronaut. But um, I, I think we've probably covered everything with the exception of one small little scene. Yeah, right at the yeah. very end. Okay, well, okay, you know, do you know what? Let's take a, take a deep breath and then think about that <gasps> tiny little thing. Who is she, Tom? She's not River. Who is she, Tom? She's not Amy. (laughs) Who is she, Tom? I don't know. Um, Nor do I. But but what I will say is this. I believe that there are Time Lords in this season. I think a lot of this hinges on the Gaiman story, uh, mm, where we've got a little pocket universe of things that may be, sh- may be shielding some people from the Doctor, because all we can say is, on face value, that little girl looked like she was regenerating. Oh, absolutely. And I think she was. And the big debate on the internet, and it's the first time that the internet has been absolutely useless in, in, in terms of <laughs> um, telling me what's happening, is, is who is this little girl? Um, and indeed, some of the audio feedback we've received focuses is on that too. So let's listen to a quick theory from Mark. I've just had a thought. There is a female with Time Lord DNA that we know is running around the Doctor's daughter, so this would be her second or third regeneration. It would have been nice to have seen um, Georgia Moffat making a reappearance in that role, but maybe he thought that was a bit of nepotism. Now it's the Rani, isn't it? <laughs> Bye. What an interesting theory. What a terrifically yeah. interesting theory. Now, that could ha- that could actually have some water. But does that mean that, she- that Jenny isn't actually a Time Lord? Because the Doctor has said several times, if there were any, I'd be able to hear them, and I can't. Well, she's not really, is she? She's a kind of prosthetic 
product of a, of a machine. And it did cross my mind that the only other Time Lord DNA knocking around the universe is that of Jenny's. But, you know, I, I can't see Stephen Moffat wanting to tell his story through a controversial episode within Russell T. Davis' era. Mm. But uh, it did cross my mind as well. It is it is possible. But to be honest with you, this is probably one conversation that you can say this little girl is any female character who has ever come into contact with the Time Lord. Perhaps this is about Amy's pregnancy then. Could it be that the child was conceived in the TARDIS? It's got to be linked. It's got to be linked. Well, one, Let's think about the things that we definitely know. Right. right, okay. This little girl is connected to the Doctor in some way. Okay. Probably connected through blood in one form or another. So how is that possible? The only way that's possible is with... Uh, very, very mysterious link with the Doctor's past that we simply don't know about. Mm-hmm. I think that's unlikely. Therefore, the only way that Time Lord DNA can still be around is through the Doctor's actions throughout the last couple of series. Mm, interesting. That's what I believe. And who who has he actually come up against? The Master. Mm. He's had contact with a prosthetic daughter. Mm. We are aware that Riversong has clearly got some connection to the Time Lord race in one form or another. And if it turns out that it, she is the Doctor's wife, then who's who's to say that they don't have offspring at some point? Well, and the thing we know is that he, he was a grandfather, or at least he was called out by Susan. So, absolutely. Yeah, that's... Absolutely. And he had a brother once as well, if you go back to Fear Her, incidentally, written by Matthew Graham, oh. who has written the next, I think it's either the next two-parter or the two-parter later on in the series. Interesting. Very interesting. All I would say about this then is that Amy was held captive by the silence in her pregnant-not-pregnant state, and she doesn't know how long she had been there for. That's the only thing I can offer with that, because that's the bit that's missing. We don't know what's going on. I do see that Stephen Moffat is kind of spoon-feeding us the information that we need, so it'll be obvious when it actually hits. I don't think that the post-hypnotic suggestion thing is as throwaway as it was made to be. Um, So Mm. in a totally wild, fantastic, throw it all out the window way. It could be that Amy was given a post-hypnotic suggestion. I'm not sure that River is a time lord. I do think that there's a strong link between River, Amy, possibly Rory as well, um, but we'll see. So things to watch out for. Amy had been there for a long time. Um, I quite liked the uh, the looking like they were killed bits. So the regular cast were all shot dead, so it looked like, uh, in, that, in the second episode. And uh, the Doctor was shot dead, or so it looked like, at the beginning of the first episode. So, you know, it's one of those things. I don't mean to sound uninformed, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the masses with everybody else. I'm just speculating and hoping that the story stays as good as it's got. Oh, interesting. Very Avon Road. Seen one of these before. Abandoned. Wonder how that happened. Oh, well, I suppose I'm about to find out. Rory, River, keep one silent and eye shut at all times. Oh, hello. Sorry, we're in the middle of something. Just had to say, though, have you seen what's on the telly? Oh, hello, Amy. You're right. Want to watch some television? Ah, now stay where you are. Because look at me, I'm confident. You want to watch that at me when I'm confident? Oh, and this is my friend River. Nice hair, clever, has her own gun. And unlike me, she really doesn't mind shooting people. I shouldn't like that. Kind of do a bit. Thank you, sweetie. I know you're team players and everything, but she'll definitely kill at least the first three of you. Not the first seven, easily. Seven, really? Oh, eight for you, honey. Stop it. <laughs> 
make me. Yeah, well, maybe I will. Is this really important, flirting? Because I feel like I should be higher on the list right now. I know this isn't a fair question to ask, but now we've seen both of the episodes. James, how many marks out of ten would you give this? <laughs> um, I'd give it, what, you mean this particular episode or the two together? The whole the whole story, the whole story. Oh, it, it's a very, very solid opening. And I would say eight out of ten. Yeah, do you know, I'm with you, I'm with you. I'm saying strong eight. Strong, confident, bold, brassy, genre-defining, living, happy Doctor Who, eight. And the only reason I'm saying eight is so there's somewhere to go if if and when the other episodes surpass it. Yeah, this this is it, you see. On that basis, we should probably not award marks until after we've seen episode 13. But given Ooh. that that's simply not within a Doctor Who fan's nature not to award some kind of statistic in terms of our appreciation, then we've given it an eight out of ten now. And in the true fashion uh, of this particular series, and it's all timey-wimey and wibbly-wobbly, we're going to go back to a conversation Tom and I had right at the very beginning of this podcast concerning how dark and how different and how odd this particular episode was. And Ian Rennie, that's what you focused on as well. Thanks very much for your feedback. Hi Tom, James and Trev. Uh, this is Ian with some quick thoughts about tonight's Doctor Who. First of all, I loved the opening. Moffat's openings are one of his strongest suits. I think the moment I saw what was happening, I knew what the tally marks were for, but it was such a wonderfully neat solution that I found myself repeating the old Thomas Henry Huxley line about how extremely stupid not to have thought of that. I think my only concern about the episode was that it was so dense and so strange and so packed with oddness that you hardly had a chance to let what was going on sit before the next oddness came along. I know a lot of it will be explained later in the series, but it felt like we had 35 minutes of scary build, 60 seconds of the Doctor doing something clever, admittedly extremely clever, and then nine minutes of aftermath. I still don't know if the evil TARDIS is a to be explained or if that's the last we'll see of it. Okay, now for some quick comments about the nine minutes of aftermath. The river kiss, so wonderful and so bittersweet that it half broke my heart. Rory's stupid face was the best part of the whole episode. Amy's baby's time head, yikes. The regenerating little girl had me using words I wouldn't normally use on a family podcast. All in all, I loved it, but I found the ending too quick. Thanks chaps. Oh, and one final thing. Where did the FBI not only manage to get the densest substance in the universe, but also two agents strong enough to carry it? Well, Tom, I think that's about it for this episode of the Doctor Who podcast. I'm very, very sorry to all you listeners who are tuning in, trying to get some answers or informed debate about this episode. But quite frankly, Tom and I don't know what's going on either, do we? <laughs> No, I'm enjoying the ride. I, mean, I have I have some ideas, and I've sh- I've shared them with people. I'm I'm trying to share the uh, things to watch out for as well, without being overly spoilery. It's still about River and Amy's relationship. The Doctor knows more than he's saying. Uh, River knows more than she's saying. And the silence. I think the silence has still got a big part to play in this. Oh, I think we'll see them again without a shadow of a doubt. But we'll probably forget it when we do. Anyway, Trevor will be back in the next episode. He'll be talking all about the fan reaction to the opening two episodes. You may remember about 12 months or so ago when we did this for season five, we released two episodes a week. 
But in the interests of maintaining our sanity, uh, we've decided to just do fan reaction episodes at strategic points throughout the series. So Trevor will be back to look at the fan reaction to the opening two episodes to series six. So feel free to get your emails in. And we've already had loads of emails in. So we want theories, we want reviews, we want speculation. Feel free to say whatever you like about this particular opening story, but do try and keep it brief. Feedback at the Doctor Who Podcast.com. Perfect. All right, James, thanks so much for joining me this morning. Do you know, James, just before we sign off, the one thing I, that has been buzzing around in my head, those little sensors, those communicators that the Doctor put in your hand, he put them in the middle of your hand, didn't he? There's like, mm. a, there's like, a, like a little scar. Did you see where the black spot was? <laughs> what a brilliant way to end. Yeah. Great idea, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it just struck me because I, I looked and on, on, on the trailer for next week's episode, the black spot's in the middle of the hand where the communicator was. Wow. Took me back to my teenage days, you know. I mean, I used to have black spots everywhere. Awful. Anyway, we really <laughs> ought to get going, Tom. Perfect, perfect. All right, well, look, thanks so much for staying with us for this episode. Really looking forward to having your company this time next week when we'll talk about the curse of the black spot. Take it easy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. You know, I just thought I'd add this because it's just occurred to me. The woman with the eye patch, is it possible that she's a midwife? Was she maybe looking in on Amy while she was dreaming and captured by the silence? It just strikes me that in colour, tone and delivery, that whole section was rather dreamlike. We'll see. Catch up with you in a week. (laughs) 